0: Hello, my name is Misty Denman, part of the Women in the Word teaching team. Really glad to be with you here today. Cannot think of any place I'd rather be than here with you truly right now. Today we come to the end of Paul's first letter to his friend and his coworker, Timothy. And as we've read and studied his letter, hasn't it just become clear how deeply Paul cares about Timothy as a person and about this young church at Ephesus. I think as much as he'd like to be, Paul can't be with this body of believers, but this letter he sends in his place, I think was better even than his personal presence. It had such practical instruction, so much encouragement, and because he wrote it instead of said it, We get to benefit from it today. The Christian faith was in its infancy when Paul wrote this letter. So everything that the church is experiencing was new. So everything Paul writes and teaches is incredibly foundational and formational. As he concludes his thoughts here at the end of his letter, Paul both revisits some of the topics he's already talked to Timothy and the church about in this letter, and then he continues to instruct and teach and encourage Timothy in more of the issues that will deeply affect the spiritual health of both the individual believers within the church and the church as a whole. But before we get to these final great words of Timothy in chapter six, because we're at the end of the letter, I'd love to take just a few minutes and look back at what we've already learned this fall because Paul um, managed us to always pack a lot into what he teaches. Paul opened his letter to Timothy with this stern warning about false teaching. That was any teaching that contradicted the true gospel message and that was to be identified and rooted out immediately. Paul opened his letter with a warning about false teaching and we're soon going to see he closed his letter with that warning about false teaching and a command to protect and to guard the truth at any cost necessary. Paul, in the earlier chapters of his letter, then goes on to flesh out some of what living under the truth of God's word and of the gospel looks like. We learned that it looked like diligently praying for the leadership of our country. It looked like and looks like allocating authority in the church to men and women according to God's plan, knowing that God values men and women equally and deeply, but has designed different roles for us. It looks like choosing church leaders whose lives have been deeply changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It looks like putting our hope in the living God and it looks like carefully and impartially honoring the other members of the church. That kind of living that's prescribed in Timothy is a high calling, but we remember we do it in God's strength and power and not in our own Now we come to chapter six, and Paul will use words and phrases, as he really has throughout the whole book, that evoke images of battle. Paul's language was purposeful. He knew that a life well lived for the Lord is a battle. We fight battles with the world because the world constantly bombards us with messages that contradict God's truth. And we have to do constant battle in our own hearts and minds so that we don't begin to believe and live the lies that we hear in the world all day long. The good news is that we're not fighting these battles on our own strength or on our own might. If we did, we'd fail. And we probably all know of times when we have tried to fight those battles in our own strength and have failed. Instead, we get to place our faith in Christ we are made alive to God and the things of God. Look with me at Romans 6, 6, and then also verse 11. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you have been with us this fall for our great fall series made new, this verse will be familiar to you. If not, um, sometime go read Romans five through eight. It's a great, great set of chapters. But even in this great and powerful truth, we still do daily battles with our spirit. Um, Am I going to act like I'm a slave to sin, give in to that desire to go my own way and walk away from God's path? Um, Or am I gonna live like who I really am and submit my will to God's good instruction for my life? It takes enormous energy and effort to fight these kind of battles, but that's okay because the fight for the gospel And for Christ in the world, in our own souls, is a fight worth fighting. If you're not already there, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter six. We're going to begin reading in verse three. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. One way we fight the battle for truth is to combat false teaching. Paul closes his letter here as he opened it with this strongly worded warning to identify and to stop false teachers in their tracks. So let's go back and remember what is false teaching. False teaching is anything that adds to, takes away from, or distorts the words and works of Jesus Christ and his written word. Paul identifies here a couple of the motives that leads people into false teaching. He says one of those motives is the craving of novelty and arguments. And another one is financial gain. Some he says really aren't purposeful enemies of the gospel. Instead, these false teachers stray off the truth of God's word and take others with them because they just love newest trends, fads, philosophies, new ways of thinking, and that need for something new all the time causes them to get stirred up and get bored, um, and then come up with ways to challenge the gospel, to twist the gospel, and that would be exciting because that would create all kinds of controversy and things to argue about. This was apparently a common issue in Paul's day. He actually used it to to his advantage during one of his missionary journeys Paul took three long missionary journeys during his life. During his second missionary journey, he was in the city of Ephesus. He was there preaching the gospel and this group of philosophers heard that he was out preaching something that would have been very different from what they had heard before. They loved that thing that was new and different. And so they invited him into their meeting. Look with me on your verse sheet at Acts 17. They said to him, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul went to their meeting, he told them something new, boldly shared the gospel with those um, who would hear it. And many of those Athenians ended up believing. So in that case, Paul managed to use that craving for something new for good. But. When that craving for new and juicy arguments and quarreling infiltrates the church, which already has established true teaching, it is a massive problem. It was in Paul's day, it has been throughout church history, and it is today as well. Pride and conceit were at the root of this craving for something new. And it really makes sense when we think about it, doesn't it? purposefully misrepresenting and tweaking what God himself has breathed out takes an awful lot of pride um, and foolishness. God's word and his teaching were meant for far more than silly tangents. In reality, God's word has the power to change lives for all of eternity. Good and true biblical teaching leads to godliness, which really simply means the overflow of Christ in us. Because we are loved by God, we can love others. Because we're forgiven by God, we can forgive others. Because we're valued by God, we can value others. When we learn that through God's word, it leads to godliness in our own characters and we in turn can pour that out onto others. Love is an outflow of these internal changes that are a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we love each other and we love the world well, that's the gospel on display for all to see. That draws people to Jesus and that's one of our great purposes and missions in life. Look back with me at one of the things that Paul said in chapter one, Verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God's word is what shapes us into the women um, who can have that sincere and active faith and it's why God's word must be protected. The potential for financial gain was another one of those uh, motives that false teachers had. In Paul's day, there were generous stipends paid to some um, people that were teachers in in the church. So even those who really were true ministers of the gospel needed to um, periodically, often, check their own spirits just to make sure that their own motives were pure, that they were ministers of the gospel because that's what they had been called to do, because uh, they wanted all to come to a saving faith um, in Christ and grow in godliness. And that income was to be seen just as a sweet and generous gift from God, not as their motivation for teaching. And because Paul has entrusted them with teaching God's word and that's a high calling, he does warn them to do that internal check of operating out of a pure heart. And it's also why in chapter three, one of the criteria listed for church leadership is that those folks would not be lovers of money. Most of us unfortunately have seen or heard modern day um, teachers or preachers that seem to be motivated by money more than they're motivated by the gospel those who promise healing or blessing uh, when you send them money or those who um, teach that God will bless us with health and wealth um, if we just have enough faith. There is absolutely no biblical um, no biblical teaching, no biblical truth that backs up that kind of teaching. It's patently false. It's the sort of teaching that Paul warns us about. It's the kind of teaching that has been a problem throughout the church and why his word is still so relevant to us today. Look with me at Acts 17. No, I'm sorry, it's Acts 20, 29 through 30 on your verse sheet. We actually looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago in chapter four when Paul talked about false teaching there as well. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and that among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciple the disciples after them. Here Paul's talking um, in Acts, he was actually talking to the same church that is in Ephesus. He spoke the words in Acts 20, about 10 years prior to when he wrote 1 Timothy. So since the very first days of the church, there have been those who would distort God's word for their own gain. They've always left destruction in their weight and it's why we firmly combat false teaching. How do we do that though as women right here, right now? God's Word is the foundation for all knowledge and understanding. It is the firm ground we stand on day in and day out. And therefore, we have to make every effort to know what it really says. Most of us have seen courtroom scenes. Um, It seems like every courtroom scene on television has that part where the person stands up and takes the oath and they say that they promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We must know that the Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So beware of taking Scripture out of the context it's written in. Beware of simply forgetting or misremembering what it says. Um, There's an incident just a couple of weeks ago when I was having lunch with a friend. She was sort of having a, a dilemma in her life and I gave her sort of off the cuff what sounded like and I, what I thought was some good sound advice. It was a little bit of a tricky situation. So I was actually talking, um, it was okay for me to do this, but I was actually talking with somebody um, um, wiser than me about it later on and I repeated the advice I had given. And this wiser friend accurately pointed out that the advice that I had given that I thought was really good advice was actually not biblical. In fact, it contradicted some of Jesus' real straightforward teaching. I am so grateful that she knew God's word well enough um, to catch my mistake and to be willing to tell me and just in the most encouraging and kind way because she's like that. And when I went back and read the verses where she had pointed out that it was wrong, I realized I had read that scripture more times than I can remember, Um, but I'd forgotten them. And I gave poor advice, um, which I did go back and revisit, by the way, I made a phone call real quick after that, But I gave that poor advice simply because I'd forgotten what Jesus has said. It was a real check for me um, to remember that even when we're steeped in the Word and studying God's Word, it's easy to forget and it's easy not to remember exactly what it says. Um, If we're to combat false teaching and stand for truth, it really will require that we are steeping ourselves in God's word. It will require that we don't allow ourselves to just think we remember what God said about this or that, but to go back and find out exactly what the scripture said. It requires a lot of time and effort. I was deeply convicted, but the battle for truth is worth fighting. The great news is we're fighting that battle here today. If you go to a church on Sunday morning, you're fighting that battle there. But as I discovered, it is not enough um, just to study God's word in those places. We must steep ourselves daily in God's word in the Old and the New Testament and the easier teaching and the hard teaching so that we can recognize and reject false teaching and know and live by the truth. All right, let's continue on. Follow along with me as I read verses six through 10. Right on the heels of his warning about false teachers, Paul launches into this very practical and relevant charge to pursue contentment. For the Christ follower, life should be marked by a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Not satisfaction in anything external, but this deep and steadying contentment and satisfaction with God. Look with me at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can be content with just the basic necessities in life which is what that phrase food and clothing in verse eight is referring to because we're the family of the living God. We possess spiritual riches beyond imagination, regardless of whether we only have just our basic needs met or whether we have much more beyond that. But it's still hard, isn't it? It honestly took me a very long time to get through studying this portion of the scripture as I was preparing for today uh, because I had to wrestle with my own convictions. I had to do a lot of pacing and a lot of praying and a lot of confessing to the Lord um, before I got up here because it really um, helped me realize that there were pockets in my own life um, where I'm not always content with just what God has given me. So I think that it is that Paul chooses this topic to address. I think in our battle to pursue truth and to allow the gospel to shape every area of our lives, Paul just understood how easy it was for us to let what we see and what we hear and what we feel and what we taste, the things around us to create a sense of security for us. But it's a facade, at any point, all that stuff could go away, and we know that because it happens. We see it on the news all the time: floods, and fires, and um, mudslides can just des- destroy all of our possessions in an instant. So Paul here is recommending, really, that we have this healthy detachment from our things because things don't last. But look what it says in Hebrews 13:5. It's one of my favorite um, scriptures. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our homes, our possessions, all of our great external stuff um, are good, but our truest need is a relationship with Jesus. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Jesus is that savior. And that great and true promise that he is never going to leave us and never going to forsake us, forsake us is where our real hope lies. It's the only place we can put our hope and our trust. Um, Just as we wanna hold fast to the truth of God's word to combat false teaching, we hold fast to the truth that if we commit to doing the hard work of pursuing and cultivating contentment with God alone, our efforts will not be in vain. We will not be disappointed. This teaching rather than making us feel guilty is really a great gift for us, I think especially today. I think we need this challenge even more than our brothers and sisters in the early church did. Listen to what one commentator said about these verses. As Christians who live in a very materialistic world, we must cultivate Paul's attitude of contentment very deliberately. This is an especially difficult task in a society like the one we live in in North America. We're constantly hearing through advertising in the media that we need all kinds of luxuries. According to Paul and Jesus, our personal needs as human beings are actually very few. Paul's point was that we should seek godliness more diligently than we seek money and the things it can buy. So what are some ways that we can seek godliness and contentment more diligently than stuff? I think one of the first things we need to do is pray. This kind of living doesn't happen out of our own strength. It's only going to happen long-term at least by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray often, ask God to plant, I think we should ask God to plant in us a deep satisfaction in him and to pursue him instead of his gifts with all of our might. One thing I've had to be real disciplined about off and on through the years are the images I put in front of my eyes as I pursue contentment. Back when I was first married, about 20 years ago, I used to get tons of catalogs in the mail. I think there's not nearly as many catalogs that come in the mail now because so much um, shopping and whatever is done online. But back then, there would just be tons of catalogs that you would get in the mail and they would be full of beautiful things for your home and shoes and clothes and whatever. And I would flip through those as a poor newlywed and feel more and more discontent with what I had um, and more and more envious of what others um, could afford to buy that I couldn't. And one day, purely by God's grace, I had this um, thought to call every catalog company which is also back when you actually made phone calls instead of just doing things online or texting, and um, asked them to stop sending me those catalogs. And for the most part, they did. There'd still be a few that would come to me. And those that would come, I would just stick in the garbage right away, right when I got them. Um, And it helped so much. It just helped me to take my eyes off of what I didn't have and remember what God had given me. Then fast forward about 10 years, I was the mom of um, two really young boys. That was sort of the beginning of blogs and when those became all the rage and I started reading all these mommy blogs and those were the blogs, um, they're not quite as much in fashion anymore, but there would be tons of them where this mom would blog about her perfect life, it seemed like, and she would put the pictures up and show the um, lovely breakfast she had made her toddler, and then the holiday craft she had done with her toddler, and then the pantry she had organized that same day, and then the gourmet dinner she had put on the table, and she had gone to the personal trainer, and so she was this big around, and, um, and I just started feeling so bad about myself. God did not wire me to be able to do all those things in one day, even all those things in one month usually. And so I just had that same discontent, that same envy over, well, if I just had the money to have a personal trainer, maybe I would look like her. If I could, if I had Whole Foods right around the corner, maybe I could do that. If I just, you know, so on and so on. And again, by God's grace, one day I remembered, oh yeah, I don't have to be looking at this stuff. I don't have to make myself feel bad every day. Um, and I stopped reading those as well, kind of like I had stopped putting down, uh, picking up those catalogs. And you know what? When I was a young mom that age, I really didn't have that much free time. And by not reading those blogs every day, I had a lot more time to spend on my Women in the Word lesson and a lot more time in God's Word. And so... It was just a great practical tool for me to take my eyes off of what God hadn't given me um, remember what he had given me, both spiritual and material, um, honestly, as well. When I look back at those two things in my life, I was piercing myself with pangs. It wasn't anybody else that was... Um, Hurting me, those are my own choices to take my eyes off of the Lord and put them on temporary things that really had very little value and didn't uh, last. And uh, Paul was so wise I think here where he says, stop piercing yourself, stop hurting yourself with running after things that um, that don't last and don't matter, just make you feel bad about yourself. Um, One final thought before we move on off of this section of scripture. Verse 10 is one of those verses that's often misquoted and misused, um, which is really false teaching. The first sentence in verse 10 says, "'The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils.'" I'll bet most of us has heard it misquoted as saying money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. That isn't what Paul is saying here. Money is a gift from God. It's a tool to buy the things we need. It's a tool to bless others with. Money buys our cars and our homes and our um, medicines and it buys um, living expenses for missionaries who are translating the gospel into other languages and it buys relief efforts when people have um, been hurt in natural disasters. Money in itself isn't evil. Money in itself is a good thing. It's when money becomes our God Um, instead of God being our God, that we go down that long road of self-inflicted pain. Just be careful. Um, That's one of those places where it's easy to misquote scripture because we've heard it often. Okay, now drop your eyes down with me and follow along. We're gonna actually drop all the way down to 17, and then we'll come back up to the middle section later. Verse 17 starts out with, Life. Here, Paul continues really the same thought about the temporary nature of worldly wealth. In the verses we were just looking at, he was addressing people who um, were not as wealthy as they wanted to be. Here, he turns his attention to those who have been blessed with wealth in this world, but he asked them to look at their hearts as well. And his prescription for these folks is actually very similar. Don't set your hope and security on the things of this world. Set your hope on God and use your wealth and the freedom it brings to bless others. Paul is really echoing the words of Jesus. Um, Look with me at Matthew 6, 19. This is Jesus speaking and he says, "'Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth "'where moth and rust destroy "'and where thieves break in and steal, "'but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, "'where neither moth nor rust destroys "'and where thieves do not break in and steal, "'for where your treasure is, there, your heart will be also part of our personal battle for truth is pursuing contentment with God, and that has eternal value rather than chasing off, chasing after earthly treasures. Now, look back up with me at verse 11, and we're going to pick up this section. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And he's talking about fleeing after the, um, the things of this world. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In both personal and very charged language, Paul leaves Timothy with a mission. Following on the heels of this very strong warning about false teaching and not chasing after the things of this world is strong encouragement. Above all else, protect the gospel. Protecting the gospel means to both preach and teach and promote truth and to live life in such a way that our salvation and our new life in Christ affects every part of our days. In verse 11, Paul calls Timothy a man of God. That phrase gave great esteem and honor to Timothy. In the Old Testament, that phrase, uh, to be called a man of God, was actually only given to a very few men. Moses, David, um, Elijah and Elisha were called men of God. And that title really describes someone who stands for God faithfully against opposition, um, who is is a leader and an example to others in their faith. Paul's entrusting Timothy here with um, God's truth. Timothy is to pass that on to others. I imagine that Timothy really felt the weight of that calling very deeply, I think it was a sweet reminder to Timothy that he was beloved and he was trusted and he was valued when he was called a man of God. Timothy and all of us are to run hard with an unrelenting, persevering effort after righteousness, which are the attitudes and actions that are in harmony with what God calls right. Um, Righteousness can sound like sort of a churchy word sometimes, and so I think of it often as simply right living before the Lord. We're to run after godliness, which is a life fully given over to God, overflowing with joy and patience and kindness and forgiveness and the fruit of the Spirit. We're to run after faith, a deep and abiding trust in God. We're to run after love, And the love that Paul talks about here is agape love. That's the kind of selfless love that's totally committed to someone else's good, regardless of whether that's reciprocated or not. That is the kind of love that Jesus had for us. It's the kind of love that he calls us to love others with. We're also to run after steadfastness, which is a sticking with the faith, even when the going gets tough. And we're to run after gentleness, which is a tender kindness toward others, but a kindness rooted in strength and prompted by love. This is the picture of a transformed life, a life set free from the power of sin, a life alive in Christ. It's a picture of a life molded and shaped by God's spirit. If I imagine ourselves as soldiers, because there is so much imagery of battle in our um, passage today, I think of some of us on the very front lines of this battle, holding a long banner. One of us has one end of it and it stretches across the line of us and one of us has the other end. And I can see the words on it, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life. Um, And it leads us forward. But what exactly is the good fight of the faith? It is to preserve and to carry out, or to carry forth God's truth, which is the whole of His Word, His life, His teachings, His death, His resurrection. Um, And we're to take that truth within the church and out into the world. And I don't know if all of this battle, uh, imagery of battle today energizes you or makes you feel sort of tired. The honest truth is I have felt both of those at times. But what's important to remember is that this fight is described as good. It's a fight that's worth it. And it's a fight that's a foregone conclusion. We will have a struggle. Um, we will have to battle to protect God's truth and to carry it on but it is a good fight. And all the stuff that Paul tells us not to worry about, the stirring up of arguments, chasing after wealth, um, those things take up a huge amount of energy. And when we're not worrying about those things, when we're keeping our eyes fixed on God and not on the fleeting things around us, we have a lot more energy to fight that good fight. And always remember when God calls us to something, He provides a way for us to do it. So as we trust and rely on him, he will provide everything we need to fight that good fight. Taking hold of eternal life doesn't mean that there's anything we can do to earn our salvation. Instead, it means that we are actively, purposely pursuing the new life we've been given in Christ as believers. Life everlasting in heaven with him is um, certainly a part of that, but also that abundant and full life we can have with him here, this side of heaven. Part of taking hold of that eternal life in Christ is guarding and protecting God's truth. Paul then charges Timothy to keep the commandment spotless and blameless. And that term commandment here is a little bit tricky. It isn't referring probably to any single commandment, but actually, or anything specific, but to actually the entire body of sound biblical teaching. It's a little bit of a summary statement as this letter draws to a close. It's another way of saying, guard the truth. And Paul refers back to Jesus' good testimony before Pontius Pilate, just prior to his death when under extremely trying circumstances, Jesus spoke truth, he upheld his purpose and mission. And as Paul, as, as Timothy remembers how um, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he can be encouraged to be bold and truthful um, in his witness to the world as well, and so can we. Paul then honors God with this most rousing doxology. A doxology is a statement that honors or glorifies God And I just wanna repeat these words here because they're so beautiful. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. That's the God we worship and serve. That's the truth that we battle to preserve. He is why it's a good fight in his brief closing, in verses 20 through 21, Paul reminds Timothy once again his final, of his final commission, guard biblical truth, guard your own faith. Don't allow yourselves to take your eyes off that truth for even one minute. Spend your life helping others do the same. Our commission is the same as Timothy's to guard God's truth by actively pushing back against any teaching that stands in opposition to God's word, to pursue contentment and hope in God alone, and to protect and carry forth the gospel in such a way that it changes our lives and the lives of everyone who believes. I want you to look with me at the first charge Paul gave Timothy back in chapter one, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may gauge the good warfare. Paul's bringing it around full circle here. As we close today and we go out into the world, I just wanna pray for us um, that God will give us the will and the wisdom to fight for truth in our generation. Lord God, you're so good. And you're so mighty, and we praise you. We thank you for trusting us with such important work for your kingdom. I do ask that you give each of us your wisdom as um, as we carry your banner out into the world. I ask you to give us a strong will for that battle. You are worth fighting for, God. Help us to remember that. We love you, Lord. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.